this is Gerard Fox, and the verdict is in. And I want to thank the growing audience of listeners. This is a public service. We do not charge a subscription fee. We have better and better and more exciting guests each and every episode. And I'm going to take a moment. This is not a paid-for ad. If you have high cholesterol, try Just Eggs. You can scramble them up, and they are vegan. They're made out of mung beans, and they taste just as good as regular eggs. You can make yourself an omelet. Just Eggs. Find them in Whole Foods, Bonds, Rouse. Okay. Now, I have a great guest here today, and uh, his name is Guy Snodgrass. He is an uh, author. He is a speaker. He is an amazing man. Uh, Guy is here today, and we're very lucky. For yeah, that. I sure can. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Guy's an author, strategist, technologist, exploring the intersection of technology, innovation, and national security. Those are big words. He is a big guy who does a big job. <laughs> As Clifton Larson Allen's managing principal for global cybersecurity and digital transformation, he oversees a team responsible for guiding corporate strategic development, communications, and digital advocacy. Commander Snodgrass also has 25 plus years of experience as a strategist and senior leader in the U.S. Department of Defense, having served as the Pentagon's Director of Communications and Chief Speechwriter to Secretary of Defense James Mattis. Now, those of us who watch the news know that's a tough job and a very interesting job. He is most recently the author, and you should get on Amazon and buy this, of Top Guns, Top Ten. Leadership Lessons from the Cockpit. I don't know about some of you, but if you've ever been out to an Air Force uh, base and you've seen these amazing, gigantic machines, uh, and to think that this is a Top Gun person, I mean, tune, you know, tune your ears in, level three listening here. And uh, he's also hosts Holding the Line, which is a popular national security and foreign policy podcast. Now that, by the way, given what just happened in Syria, questions people have about relations in Iraq and uh, Iran and uh, China, that, that, that you should listen in and participate and, and, and be heard and ask questions. He has appeared as an expert national security and top technology commentator on CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, NBC, and others, and is a regular contributor to Forbes. So he, left, right, he, he appears on their shows. He's a military man. And in the end, he's about, you know, strategy and success. Previously a career U.S. Navy F.A. 18 fighter pilot. How many of us wish we could have said that? How cool is that? <laughs> Guy led combat sorties in support of forces on the ground during Operation Iraqi Freedom and served as a U.S. Navy fighter weapons school top gun. Yeah, we all think of Tom Cruise. Instructor and completed two tours of duty in Japan as part of the forward deployed naval force in the Indo-Pacific region. Serving as squadron commanding officer during his second tour, Guy currently serves on the board of directors for the U.S. Naval Institute, the Center for International Maritime Security, and Canderful, a nonprofit dedicated to assisting military men members re-entering the civilian workforce. By the way, that's huge. We all see, you know, when people serve their country, the country should serve them, and you should never forget that. You see a homeless vet on the street, you buy them a meal, you get them some coffee, you give them some cash. They're protecting your freedom. And they protected your freedom. Uh, and if you see them anywhere, thank them for their service. And Eagle Scout. Guy was recognized in 2020 with the National Outstanding Eagle Scout Award by the Boy Scouts of America. 
Yeah, my uh, dad started a, a Boy Scout troop, and um, I left it, so I succeeded where I didn't. My dad ended up running that whole troop without me. It's just one of those stories that a father and a son share. So, Guy, first of all, this is an amazing um, opportunity for us to talk. You have decades of experience with artificial intelligence, a field that is just now beginning to garner mainstream attention. And I have to tell you, I have uh, gone to debates at MIT. Artificial intelligence is much broader than anybody can imagine. How do you assist organizations looking to adopt artificial intelligence? Yeah, thanks again uh, for having me on. And and I kind of chuckled as you were making your way through various elements of my biography because, you know, as my dad used to say, that and $2 will buy you a cup of coffee. But you know, it's, it was a blast to serve our nation for about 25 years in uniform, and it's been great to, to witness this transition to the civilian and the private sector and to get involved with industries. And like you touched on, some of the stuff I've been been working with, especially very recently, is providing those kinds of advisory services to large corporations. And you're right. I mean, there's so much that is coming our way that is tied directly to how you capture how you manage and how you derive insights from data. And we're seeing this across pretty much every single industry. You're seeing it across, you know, uh, everything from healthcare to, you know, legal and financial. I mean, everyone's collecting data and you want to find ways to drive greater value from it. And that's typically where either artificial intelligence in general or a subset of it known as machine learning comes into play because you can now start to find new ways to use that data that's very powerful and very insightful. And I would tell you too, I think, you know, from your own experience, right? I mean, as this information and as these types of analytical approaches to data are increasingly used, you're going to see more and more litigation occurring because of the fact that you're using machines to drive insights that people used to provide. And that's going to, that's going to result in false positives. That's going to result in areas where maybe the wrong individual is apprehended. Uh, and so you're, you know, we've already seen a demand signal increase where attorneys need that kind of service to help provide perspective. Well, how in the world is artificial intelligence used? How do you create these algorithms to help law enforcement or others? And then also, you know, knowing how they work, how can I adequately support my client? Yeah, when I looked at your questions, you know, when I started as a lawyer, there were not computers on many people's desks. And that was 1985. You can imagine that. Eventually, we learned computers. Eventually, much later, cell phones appeared, smartphones appeared. But now I have, you know, Alexa sitting upstairs, and I was wondering, can I ask Alexa to give me all the cases on a certain legal issue? Maybe not, but it won't be that long before you can ask artificial intelligence to give you, uh, uh, you know, cases on point and uh, uh, to, to do, you know, complex mathematical formulas, don't you think? I agree. And, and, you know, that's where we are right now. That's some of the work I did right after I transitioned from the U.S. military. I worked for a really interesting company as their chief strategy officer. And and we were we were basically doing what's called aggregating data. And that's where you take across multiple industries, you might have access to a large data set that a healthcare provider is using to provide healthcare. But then you also can overlay that with someone's uh, biographical data and then their location-based data, right? And so you can start to form a more cohesive whole about individuals, about organizations, about companies. And like you're asking with Alexa, right? I mean, that brings it home. We've all got some kind of digital assistant, either in our cell phone or in a device on our countertop and or in our car. And so you can, you can imagine as information becomes more and more democratized, 
Uh, I think it's what LexisNexis is not what a lot of attorneys can use to search yes, case files. Yes, yes, Lexis and Westlaw. Westlaw would be upset if I didn't mention them, but there's a two <laughs> services. There you go. And so, you know, I think that's one of those things will be interesting because the information is becoming more and more democratized. And so as that comes out, you know, you're going to, uh, or even those two services you mentioned, you know, they can apply analytical approaches to provide attorneys and others in the legal profession with even greater insights. Uh, and sometimes you may come in asking a certain question and not even realize that what you really needed is what the result is given to you because it really kind of understands the context of why you're asking and what you're using the material for. Yeah, when I start uh, the analysis of a case at 30,000 feet, before my lawyers jump in, I want to give them some guidance. I'll Google the issue now, and I'll get the leading cases, or I'll get a case. I'll actually be able to pull up a case. So, you know, the things that you can do with technology are amazing. Uh, And, of course, there was a debate. I went down to a, a conference in New Orleans where top industry leaders were debating the ethics of artificial intelligence, because in theory, it could... um, remove a lot of jobs from the workplace. And the debate was, should that happen? Should we limit it? And, you know, it was a very, very interesting debate. Do, do, have you thought about that guy? Did, did you come out one way or the other about whether artificial intelligence should have limits at, at a certain point? Uh, you know, look, I mean, for, with my background in national security, I would say, yes, there's there are, there are areas where natural limitations might apply. Would I want a artificial intelligence computer program in charge of our nation's nuclear stockpile? No, I I certainly wouldn't because there's too many ways that that could go south in a hurry. On the flip side, though, I think, you know, if you're a student of history, we've watched over decades and centuries of time, there's a little bit of hand-wringing anytime some new, innovative, groundbreaking technology comes along. We grow very concerned with how do we adopt it and how do we make it as useful as possible while minimizing the impact to society and and making sure it's a positive impact. And I think that's what you're going to find with AI. What I've what I've realized is that with a lot of the companies I've helped make that transition is that they, you can free up individuals from more mundane tasks and you can actually elevate their, their role within the firm. You can elevate their role in the company because instead of doing like, say, for example, basic data processing, well, guess what? Now you can actually have machine learning do that for you and you can elevate your role to something that provides greater context and insight. And frankly, you find a lot of people like that because it's more intellectually engaging. And it's something that they actually derive more enjoyment from than like kind of the, the basic work. And so I think we're going to see across a lot of industries that it provides a, a net benefit for both employees and employers. So in advising on AI capabilities and limitations, do you and can you advise, for example, law firms? Oh, absolutely. In fact, that's one of my favorite because if you think back to some of the jobs I've had, right, I, I was the, the speechwriter for the head of the U.S. Navy. I was a speechwriter, as you mentioned, for Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis. And I worked with uh, then-President Trump quite a bit. You know, I wrote the national security portions of the speeches that he gave to Americans. And what you learn in a job like that is how to take very complex and complicated types of topics, you know, and and break them down into a way that every American can understand. And that's what I've enjoyed when I work with non-traditional companies like law firms, right? I mean, I love walking in and talking to the partners and and they say, okay, what is going on with this AI stuff? You say, okay, here's how it works. Here's what you need to know about it. Here's how it can impact your case. Here are the limitations of an algorithm. Here's You mentioned AI and the ethical use of AI, and, and then you kind of went to the impact it might have on jobs. Usually what I hear law firms interested in is the ethical use of AI. Well, if your data set, you know, because the, the strength of what it can provide you is, is only as good as the data it's trained on. Well, if it's all white men 
then you're going to get false results for people of color. You're going to get false results for women. You're going to get things that will bias a data set towards one group or another. And that's usually where people start becoming more concerned about ethics and AI. Yeah. And there's a million uh, places that AI can go. For example, people are worried about um, police brutality. But essentially, a lot of people have been talking about, and you know, this gets a little futuristic, but a, a group of robotic police that are trained not to shoot or kill uh, because they're enraged. But, to, to, but again, if you got to that, it would be how, how the computer was programmed, correct? Well, so I'm going to take a step back. You know, uh, one of the firms I work for right now, they always reference, because there actually is, a, I was surprised to learn, there's a coalition called the Coalition Against Killer Robots. <laughs> so it's this group that exists to say, look, we don't want the Terminator running around on our streets or on the battlefield. That's a bridge too far. And we're a long ways away from that kind of capability. You know, what they do typically do is when you think about artificial intelligence, you can break it into kind of two big blocks. You could say there's general purpose artificial intelligence. And that's what people think of when they think of the Terminator. You know, something that is so sophisticated and so knowledgeable about the world around you that you could power it up, turn it loose, and it's just autonomous. It does its own thing without any or or with minimal human interaction. And that that's not in existence right now. What we do have an increasing rise of is specialized AI. And this is for a very narrow task, a very narrow skill set. The US military, for example, because there's a lot of drones overhead in Afghanistan or Iraq, you know, you're looking for terrorists, you're looking for danger to our troops overseas. Well, you know, if you tried to have a number of people sitting and staring at computer screens all day, every day, 24 hours, you know, seven days a week, that's very fatiguing and you're likely to miss something. But that's where if you have specialized AI, they could, they could monitor those video streams and tag something of interest and, and basically flag your attention and say, hey, this looks like it could be a terrorist planning an explosive device along this route. You should look at this, right? And it'll flag maybe like one minute before, one minute after so you get context. That's the strength of, of AI. So it's not that you have terminators running around. It's that you can take very specific repeatable tasks. You can apply machine learning to it. You can apply an algorithmic approach, and you can elevate people into a role where it's a lot more about decision-making and a little bit less about manual labor. Yes, and, you know, way back in when you read historical accounts, people used to get be transported by horse. The whole economy was about having all these horses that were ridden by people and all these horse trails. And then all of a sudden, people started to lay down railroad tracks, and there was a railroad. And for people of that time, it was mind-blowing. And it, and, it changed, and all of a sudden, there was an issue with what do you do with all these horses? And, you know, people were getting places faster. And uh, so life is full of change and ad- adaptation. Wouldn't you agree? Oh, absolutely. 100%. I mean, and you think, once again, I spent a large part of my time in the U.S. Navy. Imagine back during the Revolutionary War, you had, you know, ships that were under sail. And so for you to get a message from the United States back to Britain, for example, or to France could take weeks, if not a month or more. So it was very difficult to communicate or for, say, someone to command an army from overseas. And then suddenly, like you just mentioned, you had the telegraph, and then you moved to undersea cables, and you have fiber optics, and now everything's computerized. And like we see, I think the stock market's a great example of this. I mean, there's whole trading groups that are set up to capitalize on those those minute trading differences that you can have if you can just get your order in a little bit quicker than the other guy. Right. And it's all happening in microseconds. I mean, it's, it's blazingly fast. And so you're right. That's that's the, been the progression throughout history is to move faster, quicker. Distances become narrower. 
you can accomplish a lot more. And, and I think 2020 was a great example of this when COVID hit because of the fact that so many people were forced to accelerate their adoption of the digital workplace, of remote work. Uh, and we've seen, you know, we've learned through trial and error what works, what doesn't. But that's just that's just the role of how that we play throughout history is finding the best best way forward. We learn some great lessons from it. And then I think we get creative and start saying, well, where else can we apply this? And I loved your question early on when you said, look, I mean, I do a lot of advocacy work and and advisory work on artificial intelligence, five, you know, fifth generation cell phones, et cetera. Is that applicable to law firms? And I say, yes, absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of non-traditional industries where this applies and that's where it's most fun because then you can actually help educate and bring people along by coming alongside them and helping them out. And meet with the executive committees of big law firms and let them know what's the cutting edge stuff that's coming their way, what might be a setback, what might be an advancement, all of those kind of strategic planning issues you do, correct? You do that. Yeah. And I think, I think you and I would both agree that a lot of, of what you can accomplish in life, you're only literally limited by your network or your knowledge base, right? So the more you know, the more widely read you are, the or the greater and more diverse friends you have, that's what's going to be your limitation. And so you're right. If I, I mean, I may personally may not have the solution for you, but I can certainly point you to the person who can give you exactly what you need. And what we've seen also with law firms, because law firms are generating so much data, right? I mean, you have a need for a lot of times transcription services. You, you're always engaged with briefs and tons of material as you're preparing for a case. And there's a lot of systems that have come online where you can basically digitize all of that and then use natural language processing is what they call it. So you yes. can query it yeah, with keyword searches and, and you can start to once again derive these connections or arrive at conclusions that may not have been apparent initially had you been trying to do this manually. And that gives you an edge if you're using those techniques and the opposing uh, legal counsel is not. Yeah, I mean, in, in law now, you know, you have these big cases with, uh, you know, millions and millions, tens of millions of documents and you do you're again limited by your search. You know, back in the day, if you really were reviewing them as a young lawyer, you might find something in a corner of a document that wouldn't be picked up on a search. Different languages used, and it could blow the whole case open. So, I, I, I think the the process that law firms store documents and search them, and and produce uh, and and hold back privileged documents, for example, or produce documents responsive to document requests, is still very antiquated. And, you know, guys like you and people like you are going to, women like you, uh, women that are, you know, in your field are going to come forward and really do a great job. Now, I wanted to ask you about what I think most of the audience is really interested in. The AI stuff is fascinating, and that's what you're an expert in. But, you know, I think everybody uh, who isn't in the Air Force, people fly commercial airplanes, but they're nothing like a, you know, F-A-18 fighter jet. I mean, first of all, can you start by explaining the power of that piece of machinery and the feeling of being responsible for it when you're in the air? Yeah. And I'm going to I'm going to jump in for your audience's sake because you did what my mom consistently does, which she claims I'm in the Air Force. <laughs> no, <laughs> Navy. I was in the U.S. Navy. 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 By the way, no, no, by no. the way. I always laugh because uh, so many of my family were like, wait a second, you're flying planes, but you're in the Navy. Why are you flying planes? Isn't that the Air Force? No, no. I, 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 yeah, I know better. I have an uncle who and he brought me to the Naval Academy in Annapolis and, and shame on me. And Good for you for no, picking no, that no. up. No, good, it's all in good fun. But uh, yes, I mean, look, I will simply tell your audience, I know you've got a large audience and they're coming from very diverse backgrounds. And I would simply say, 
you know, with all humility, thank you. Because when I think about the road I was put on early in my in my life, right? I mean, it was because of individuals who gave to their community, and I know that's big for you. You know, you give back to your community, you find ways to help others, you mentor uh, quite a bit, and that's what put me on the path to becoming a fighter pilot. I had a, a mentor in my church who worked at a company called General Dynamics. They manufactured an airplane or a fighter jet called the F-16 Fighting, fighting Falcon, and he instilled the love for aviation in me. And it also helped that I grew up in Dallas-Fort Worth, and we have a couple uh, military bases nearby, and I got to see the air shows. So all that to be said, when you ask what's that experience like, I mean, it really is. It's like a roller coaster ride, the very best one you've ever been on in your life, and you get to do it as part of your career. So you are, in my case, as a, as a member of the U.S. Navy flying a fighter plane, most of my career was spent flying from and back onto the decks of a nuclear-powered aircraft carrier that's in the middle of the ocean. And you're sitting there on the deck, you know, you've got a steam catapult that will help throw you into the sky. So you're sitting there, not moving at all. You're just stationary with your engines at full afterburner. And that steam catapult launches you off. And next thing you know, you're going from zero to about 200 miles an hour in about two seconds. Oh, yeah, just a, a thrilling experience. And you, you're working with some of the best men and women that this nation has to offer who are very like-minded. They want to serve their country and, and uh, also realize their fullest potential as a professional. Uh, and then you come back and, and you get a chance to not only uh, fly those missions, but you land on the aircraft carrier and it's the same thing in reverse. You've got these wires stretched across the deck of the carrier and you do what's called an arrested landing. You have a, you have a hook actually is, uh, hanging from the back end of your aircraft that you can put down. And when you come over the, the flight deck of the aircraft carrier, you go about 150 miles an hour and that hook catches. And boy, if it catches, you're, you're going from 150 to zero in about two seconds. And it, oh, it, it wow. brings you to a full stop in about 800 feet. What does that do to your back? I mean, anything? You're, you're okay? You're good? <laughs> you're good other than if you – I've had a few in my career called a hard landing, and it's where you come down steeper than you expected. And, and in the Navy, unlike – you said commercial aviation. I think most people can relate to that. If, if they've had a commercial flight, you know, you do what they call flare to land. It's, it's typically where the pilot will raise the nose, and if he does it very well, you can barely feel those main landing gear just eke them their way onto the runway. That's not how the Navy flies, right? Because we're used to, to landing on an aircraft carrier. I could go into a lot of depth that I won't, but basically you want to keep your airspeed up. And the way you do that is by, by basically slamming yourself into the deck. So already it's putting a little bit of strain on your neck and your back, but if you do it the wrong way, and I've done it the wrong way a few times, uh, yeah, you, you definitely can feel it the next morning when you wake up. And I want to talk to my audience out there. Can you imagine being up in the air, moving that fast, and looking down at a naval ship, which probably looks like the size of uh little battleships that you had in the game called Battleship and uh, uh, trying to come down and land at that speed. You know, Guy, I would imagine it takes a certain personality to do that. I mean, that's scary. I think you have to, you know, you certainly have to be willing to accept risk. You have to, you know, find that kind of stuff enjoyable and exciting. I, I had friends who, you know, they went a month or two and realized this is not my cup of tea and, and they wound up, you know, finding their way out of the program. And we found other stuff for them to do, which was incredibly satisfying. But look, I, I loved it. I love that experience. It was during that very first tour of duty when I found myself in Iraq during Operation Iraqi Freedom. Loved serving, you know, helping the men and women who were on the ground, the Navy SEALs and others. And that, you know, again, that inculcated in me this excitement to to want to try to strive to be the very best. And so that's where I went to probably what your listeners really care about, right? Which is going to Top Gun and being a Top Gun instructor. And especially, I know a lot of people are very excited. Paramount Pictures is currently slated to have uh, Top Gun Maverick, the latest Top Gun movie, come out July 2nd of this year. So fingers crossed that that, that hits the, the theaters because I think that's going to create a lot of just 
groundswell of support for the men and women in uniform. And I think also drive a lot of our uh, young patriots across this country to want to find a pathway to service. And by the way, as we wrap up here, I want to touch on your book, Top Guns, Top 10 Leadership Lessons from the Cockpit. And I wanted you to explain to the audience how you translated what was happening in that cockpit to some leadership lessons. How'd you, how'd you do that? You know, well, so I share both types of examples. I share plenty that are coming straight from the cockpit. You know, one example would be when I had my, uh, so the F-18, the Super Hornet we talked about, that fighter jet I flew for a majority of my career. I had a situation as a young student where the right engine exploded. There's two engines, your left and your right. My right one exploded and completely stopped working. I had no thrust from it. And I was young, right? And, and you have to just focus on the problem at hand. You safely land the aircraft. You fight the emergency. And you realize uh, from that, you know, the lesson I share is that it's, it's about staying calm under pressure. Because whether you're in a fighter jet, whether you're in a court, right, and, and, you're, and you're trying a case, you could be uh, in any type of industry. I mean, it's all relative. So, but you find these stressful situations and, and, and it seems like for most jobs, job number one is just stay calm under pressure. Just realize that there have been plenty of people who've come before you. They've done this. You can do this. And one of the best ways, of course, just like you know, uh, that you reach success is by being as well prepared as possible. And so that taught me a lot of great lessons. You know, and I even go after some that are out of the cockpit as well. I share one of the chapters is about the first experience I had at Top Gun, where when you serve as a Top Gun instructor, you are in charge of a subject matter area for the entire U.S. Navy and Marine Corps. It's not just for Top Gun. It's for, you know, about, gosh, at that stage, about a million men and women who are serving. And you set their tactics and you tell them how they're going to do this job. And so long and short of it is you are assigned a subject matter expert. You have to be the expert for it. It takes about a six-month process of doing what we call pre-boards, and, and it culminates with the murder board. Uh, which is where you go before the entire Top Gun staff and they evaluate you whether you pass or fail. And what made it so tough for me is I'm not great at rote memorization, but my lecture was four hours long. I had 267 slides. And part of the drill of becoming a Top Gun instructor is you're not allowed to look at your slides at all during that four hours. It's all from complete memory. And that's why it takes six months to prepare. And I remember thinking, I'm never going to be able to do this. I you know, went to a Top Gun instructor. He kind of taught me his techniques. And of course, everyone pitches in to strengthen you and make you as good as you possibly can. But I share that as an example of, no, guess what? I mean, I thought this was an insurmountable task, but I did it. And it just reinforced to me that nothing worthwhile is ever easy. The fact that you do have to dedicate a lot of time and effort and energy and dedication if you want to really succeed, and especially at a place like Top Gun, right, where you're working with someone of the best fighter pilots our nation has to offer. So, you know, whether it's in the cockpit or out of the cockpit, I found that there were 10 lessons that really made a difference throughout the entirety of my career in and out of uniform. And the response I've loved the best so far is whether it's high school students or people who are towards the tail end of their careers across a variety of sectors saying, my gosh, this book really spoke to me and, and thanks for writing it. And to me, that just means that it's not just about being a fighter pilot. It's applicable to a wide range of people. And Top Guns, Top 10 Leadership Lessons from the Cockpit, that's available on Amazon. You can Order it off of there? Yeah, absolutely. You can get it on Amazon. You can get it at Barnes & Noble. You can go walk into your Barnes & Noble if you're in a place where uh, you feel comfortable doing so and, and uh, grab a copy of the book. Well, I would encourage everyone who's listening who has a small business or is working in a business or running a business, buy this book and here's why. There are tons of leadership books out there. You can buy them and, and pile them up every single year from the floor to the ceiling, and a lot of them are a snore. Let's admit it, they're a snore. But these kinds of concentrated, focused lessons are the most critical for any leader. For example, 
you know, you can't panic in a crisis. Because if you do, it's over. You, you look on the like, who are our, our the greatest athletes know how to focus. And you know, Willis Reed. When I was a young kid, I went to Madison Square Garden. He was limping onto the court, but he he brought the team to victory for a championship because of focus. And all of us in this pandemic, as leaders, can't we can't uh, panic. We can't. I mean, and and that's why this book is the kind of book you pick up, you read it, you put it down, and you go. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and they're diverse. They're diverse lessons too. I mean, another chapter is about anticipating and expecting problems. And not only do I share it from my vantage point as a former fighter pilot, but I also draw it back to 2020. I mean, who could have seen the pandemic coming? Who could have seen some of these challenges we face? So you're right. Wholeheartedly agree. Uh, it's a wide variety of lessons. It's not just focused on how do you be a great military person. It's it's focused on how do you succeed in life from lessons that are derived from a very unique standpoint. So besides getting your book. How would a person get in touch with you if they wanted you to come speak or to advise them on the capability of artificial intelligence or forming uh, data-driven strategies? How do people get in touch with you? Yeah, great question. So I, I think the three easiest ways, you can find me pretty easily on Twitter or on LinkedIn or on Facebook. Again, a unique name, right? Guy Snodgrass. So uh, I'm pretty easy to find. I've also got a website, guysnodgrass.com. There's a contact form there. And one thing that I've always committed to is uh, as I respond to every single inquiry I get, uh, I love, I mean, I've loved writing the book because not only did it get some, the ability to make a positive impact in people's lives, but it also has had that ripple effect where, like you said, you really have this opportunity to come into a lot of diverse organizations and speak about leadership and speak about, you know, how do you really elevate your game? And I found that to be very fulfilling. Well, thank you for serving in the U.S. Navy and flying planes for the Navy and protecting our country. And thank you for being a leader and helping professional organizations and writing a book on leadership. This conversation could go on forever. And for you in the audience, you can continue it by getting in touch with Guy and talking to him and maybe having him inspire some people by coming to speak, but also pick up his book. This is a book worth getting. And Guy, thank you for your time. I must tell you, you're one of the more interesting people I've met in 35 years. Oh, I'm, I'm honored. I know you're being incredibly generous, but uh, I think this kind of opportunity is a two-way street. So one of the things I love about coming on and chatting with individuals like yourself, when you, I mean, once again, you're just making this uh, diverse opportunity available. So thanks very much. Great chatting with you and your listeners and best of luck to you. All right. And by the way, everyone, remember what I said, bring your cholesterol down, go, and I'm not getting paid. This is not a paid ad. I, I was very skeptical. Go buy just eggs. You can't obviously sunny side up them, but if you like omelets, they they're tell me they taste any different. Write to me at gfox at gerardfoxlaw.com and tell me they taste different than a regular omelet. And and I'm telling you, there's a lot of you out there that need to get your cholesterol down. You're eating mung beans when you're having an omelet. And again, this is a public service, so everyone have a great day. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.